Hello, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on The State of Shakespeare, we have Scott Newstock. Hey, Scott, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Scott Newstock grew up in Duluth, Minnesota, uh, a mining town, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct, Scott? That is right. That is right. Big mining port. It's a port for shipping throughout the Great Lakes. Yeah, I've been there and it's quite, quite beautiful. Um, he attended Grinnell College and earned his doctorate from Harvard University. He's taught at Oberlin, Amherst College, Gustavus Adolphus College, and held a postdoctoral fellowship in humanities at Yale University's special library, Special Collections. He currently teaches at Rhodes College, where he serves as the founding director of the Pierce Shakespeare Endowments, a program that keeps Shakespeare vibrant for today's world. Um, and he's also the author of How to Think Like Shakespeare, which will be the subject of our conversation. But before we get to your book, I want to know what it means when you, say, when you say keeping Shakespeare vibrant for today's world. What does that exactly mean? Well, let me just start by giving some context about who Dr. Iris Pierce was and what her, what her gift to the college, uh, Rhodes College, where I teach has meant to the Memphis community. She was a, a prominent physician in Memphis. She was a, a path-breaking uh, female doctor who eventually worked her way up to becoming the, the president of the Memphis City Hospitals, which oh. primarily served uh, underserved communities within the city of Memphis. And when she uh, passed away about 15 years ago, she left a generous bequest to the college. And it's it was generous both in terms of the amount of money that she left, but it also was generous in the way that she didn't have many strings attached to it. She just said to support Shakespeare studies. Um, as if you know anything about fundraising, that's exactly the kind of gift that you want to get. Um, you don't <laughs> yeah. want to get a gift that says this can only support X, Y, or Z. So with with the generosity of that, that liberal uh, latitude that she had in giving that gift, it's meant that we've been able to do all kinds of things all the way from hosting performers, uh, visiting directors, supporting the theater department and their stage productions and their rehearsals, uh, bringing in lecturers, talking about topics ranging from environmental studies to race, to the history of the book, to the history of the Bible, all through the kind of connecting hub of Shakespeare. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's been great fun. It's been enormous fun. We, of course, we just had to cancel a symposium because of the lockdown. Uh, we were about to have a symposium about Shakespeare and the law and uh, in include scenes from students performing, scenes from Shakespeare, trial scenes from Shakespeare, and then also bring in a number of really great scholars. So we're hoping to be able to postpone that until the fall. Let me guess, Merchant of Venice played a part in that one. Yes. In fact, it was going to be called Qualities of Mercy. It was going to be the name of the, of the stage <laughs> production. So here's the, uh, here's the deep dive. Was Measure for Measure included at all? Yes, I think it was one of, the, one of the scenes that was selected as well. That's right. So, Scott, you've written uh, How to Think Like Shakespeare, a book that examines um, modern education through the um, lens of Shakespearean education. Uh, is the book available right now or is it about to be published? And if so, when? It will be published on April 21st. So the week of, you know, a couple of days just before the death day and presumed or speculative birthday. Uh, but it's based on the talk that I gave or grew out of a talk that I gave at Rhodes College in 2016 to the entering class of actually 2020. So there's a kind of odd symmetry where the ideas that I first formulated four years ago to speak to those students are now coming to fruition as they're 
about to graduate. They're not having commencement, sadly, but as they're about to make their way into the world. And I think the reason that that's interesting is because when uh, there is something about being seven years old in um, How to Think Like Shakespeare. And can you explain that? Sure. So when I I was asked to give the talk to that entering class in August 2016, and I spent the whole summer worrying about it and thinking that the last thing they'd want to hear would be a talk from a Shakespeare professor. So I was trying to think my way into their their situation uh, as incoming students. And at the same time, I have children myself, uh, one of whom was seven, around seven years old at the time. And I was just thinking myself into that space of being seven. A lot of the frustration that I've experienced as a parent with my kids' education relates to a lot of reforms that began around 2001 in the United States when that entering class would have been around seven years old. Um, so high stakes testing, really is a is an ongoing byproduct of of uh, no child left behind and race to the top and a number of other initiatives which were of course all well intentioned and made with uh high ideals about increasing literacy and numeracy but the, the consequences have been pretty awful on the ground from everything that i've seen so as i was struggling to think through a way to address these incoming students i i was remembering that their whole lives have been up until that point under a very test-driven, assessment-driven way of thinking about learning. And I was trying to think my way back to what I've loved about learning and what I've loved about education and what are some of the still beneficial aspects of the kind of education that Shakespeare would have experienced. How did this, how, how did this speech go, by the way? Oh, it's always hard to tell, but I, you know, I enjoyed it. Um, I think one of the highlights actually was uh, I began by joking that this was my advice to the incoming class, that they need to get up at 6 a.m. every day they need to study Latin until noon. They need to take a break for lunch, go back to studying Latin, get beaten <laughs> if they were late, and they need to do that six days a week. And so it was it was a kind of funny beginning because initially there was some uncertainty that, you know, what on earth is this guy saying? And and then once they realized, I, I pivoted and said, that's not actually what I'm recommending. But before I pivoted, one of my colleagues who teaches Latin stood up in the audience and started clapping and cheering because, of course, he thought that would be a great curriculum to have. 12 hours a day of, of Latin nonstop. <laughs> um, and then this led to your book, How to Think Like Shakespeare. There's quite a few chapters, there's 14 chapters, and you, you address a lot of different aspects of modern education. It's impressive how many, of how many great thinkers you put it through the lens of, but primarily Shakespeare. Um, and if you could boil your point down to one, one sentence, <laughs> I know it's very difficult, what would it be, do you think? That's a good question. I think I think the main point is that we have a lot of we have a lot of educational binaries that are are unhelpful. They're they're not productive and they're not they're they're setting things up in opposition that are not really in opposition. What's different from back in Shakespeare's day? What's the difference? Were there binaries back mm -hmm. then or no? Sure, of course. I mean there's always that's kind of you know a major way that we structure thought is by setting up oppositions and that's that can be productive. Um, but I think it's also the case that this was an era that that delighted in setting up binaries and then undoing those binaries or showing that they're only supposed paradoxes, but that you can synthesize them in some way. So I think a, a kind of typical binary is something like either education has to be disciplined or it needs to be full of creativity. Whereas I think I think we all have great examples in our lives and in our practices of places where 
we have chosen to be disciplined or constrained in some kind of way in order to achieve eventually a kind of freedom or autonomy. So I'm not an actor, but certainly I know actors who you learn through certain kind of habits of imitation and repetition so that eventually you can work your way to autonomous freeform looking creativity, but it's based on the, the, the habits and practices that, that led up to that point. Those things aren't, aren't right. opposed to each other. I mean, I think the place where I often point out where we we're willing to grant this is two, two places, two realms. One is in the realm of music where we were very willing to concede that you need to do a lot of stuff that looks fairly, rigorous and repetitive in order to reach the kind of high point of improvisation and autonomy and, and fantastic performance. And I think we, we recognize that it's the same thing about physical achievements in, in sports where, you know, you spend your life practicing a certain kind of series of motions. So that way, when the right moment comes in a competition, you're able to do something that looks like it's spontaneous and it looks like it came out of nowhere and you look like a genius, but in part it's because you spend two hours every day aiming that one shot over and over and over and over again. So I guess that I, I feel like we we're, we're very willing to grant that those things are not in opposition in the musical and sports realms. And I wish that we could do more of that in the in the development of thinking and writing and speaking. Well, I have to say that you're preaching to the choir because it's, <laughs> it's uh, I, I'm not sure about Garrett, but first of all, both Garrett and I uh, teach acting. Uh, and second, mm -hmm. second of all, we're both parents um, mm -hmm. with yourself and two young children. So this is a fruitful conversation for the three of us. But one of the things I talk to my students about, is, I have two points. One is that it is, you know, learning acting is a little bit like learning a, a, a sport, an athletic event, and it requires repetition, repetition, repetition. Um, and in the repetition, you have to get bored and then you'll get good. <laughs> um, and then the second thing, the second observation I'd like to add to that, Scott, is that uh, I, I am at the, at the place I teach, one of my um, tasks is to teach the dance majors, pe people who have come to major in dance, acting. Uh, they feel strongly that dancers mm -hmm. will benefit from an acting class. And one of the things I've noticed about dancers is that they already sort of are hardwired to understand that repetition and doing rote over and over and over work frees them to dance in a way that many of the students who haven't had that kind of discipline uh, don't understand. Um, and I and so when my supervisors come to look at the work the dancers do, they're always surprised. And I'm like, I'm not surprised at all because they've got an underlying discipline that they work off of. Um, and to, so to your point, I think that is a huge part of training, my question then is, how would you translate that from an artistic enterprise to something like, let's say, English? English in terms of reading or writing? Both. Or... Let's say both. Well, I think, you know, there's tons of examples you can find from writers saying, one of the ways I learned to write was by imitating writers that I liked. And then eventually, after a certain amount of time, a kind of wonderful alchemy happens where you end up you know, in the cliche phrase of finding your own voice in part by inhabiting other voices. So I cite a number of examples of writers who have spoken very fondly of trying to imitate or even trying to ape is the word that Robert Louis Stevenson uses other writers. And some, in some cases, so extremely close imitation where they all they were doing was typing out or handwriting versions of a writer whom they admired. So um, Hunter S. Thompson recounts doing that 
with Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Faulkner, just, just retyping passages so that he could get the feel of what it felt to write like that. And uh, musical composers in the 17th century were recommended the same practice for composition to actually take a, an example of a piece of music that they liked and overlay it onto a piece of paper and prick through the composition that they admired so that they would literally be almost inhabiting the body space of, of the composer that they, they wanted to sound like. So again, that, that sounds really basic and banal, but I think from my experience, going through that process of emulating someone who you admire is a, a tested and oddly effective way to become more like yourself, paradoxically. I'm sure you, I'm sure actors have this too, where you end up imitating the style of, of people, who, actors you admire in order to find your own center, as it were. Or no, the same no. thing, again, athletes, again, you think about someone that likes a certain athlete's move and you spend hours and hours doing that. And then eventually it becomes part of your own repertoire of all the moves that you make that are your signature, as it were. 100%. Scott, we've, we're speaking at a very interesting time in human history and a certain, certainly a, a, a time that has a lot of profound implications for uh, pedagogy and, and the direction that it's going to take. I mean, um, we are recording this in April, 2020, and we're just beginning to come to terms with um, social distancing and distance learning and everyone who's involved in education from the uh, first grade student to uh, college faculty is now engaged in distance learning, whether they want to be or not. And you have a chapter in your book, chapter seven, and on technology. And I was drawn to a particular passage here. I don't know if you have the book in front of you. I'm happy to read it, but if you have a book and copy of the book in front of you. I've given away all my copies um, of the book, so I don't <laughs> we have a copy of it. <laughs> well, that, well, that's great. Then I don't, I don't have to feel bad about reading your words um, here <laughs> in front of you. Please do. <laughs> but here it is. It's on page 64, and it says that, uh, presuming that the only kind of technology is digital technology, and that digital technology improves upon anything that preceded it. That's uh, our era's current fable. This fable amounts to a creed, unshakable in the face of mounting evidence that computers don't improve learning. Instead, they exacerbate, not mitigate inequality, and may even degrade the precise habits that education ought to cultivate. So I wonder if you have any, any thoughts about the ways that um, we're moving very rapidly now towards a digital learning environment and what the implications are. Yes, I've thought about this constantly for the last month and been in a number of conversations about it. I mean, and clearly, you know, on account of the emergency, everyone is having to improvise and do the best that they can in these circumstances. I think, and I, I appreciate that and I'm, I'm doing it and my colleagues are doing it and I know everyone is doing it globally. I, I, I still stand by that paragraph I, I, there's a couple things that I guess I would, I feel have been confirmed for me. The, the statement about inequality is, is proving to be true. Um, I'm sure you've seen, there's a damning article in the New York Times this week about, I mean, it's basically a, a confirmation that access to resources leads to more access to resources. I mean, that's nothing new, but it's, it's becoming very stark. So um, underserved communities, uh, English language learners, families with without resources, families where the parents are having to work and children are taking care of siblings. Those are the kinds of families that are suffering the most right now in the transition to the remote or distant environment. Schools that 
are private and have a lot of resources are having in some cases, you know, 100% attendance online and, and schools at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum are just suffering um, and having uh, all kinds of absenteeism from students that they can't even get a hold of. So, I mean, that's 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 one thing that's, I think, clear. I think it's indisputable that the environment that we're in right now, which is a necessary thing to be doing as an interim measure, actually makes even more clear that economic, socioeconomic inequality is exacerbated by technology, um, digital technology. And then that other distinction that I made in that paragraph that you cited is, it's it's easy to conflate technology with only digital technology. There's all different kinds of technologies that we use. If you think of technology more broadly as, uh, for instance, a pen or, or a pencil or a book or a piece of paper, or even something like being in a room together, um, which we're all frustrated about not being able to do right now, that that is a that is a techne or that is a, a way of organizing humans to interact with each other that's it's really hard to reproduce online i've been this week consulting with my advisees about courses that they're planning to take next semester and without any prompting from me all of them said that they're frustrated they're frustrated most by the lack of motivation of not being in a room with other people um, they were they're all grateful for the way their faculty have been creative and flexible and trying the best that they can to make do in current circumstances. But they all said they were in some ways surprised by how difficult it is to feel the same intensity of interaction that you have when you were in a room with other people. It sounds, again, that's a kind of banal thing to say, but I, I feel like I feel like the circumstances have confirmed that for, for many of us. Well, it's not banal at all, particularly when you're talking to two people who perform live. Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. The first place, strangely, that I noticed a difference between technology and alive is in the is in the um, late night talk show hosts. Um, so I remember early on in the crisis, Colbert did a Stephen Colbert did a show in his theater, but with just his staff in the audience, and there was a big difference in his performance because um, he feeds off the audience, and the audience feeds off of mm -hmm. him, and there's that what we know as performers, that sort of loop, that psychic loop and emotional and reactive loop between an audience and a performer um, that we talk about in theater, but is also in the classroom. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt it's in the classroom and how students feed off of a professor um, or a teacher. As an acting teacher, it's a challenge to yes. do this remotely. Um, and mm -hmm. so there is that, there is that sort of magic or unspoken human interaction, that energy that um, is just, I think, to education vital. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, again, I hope, I hope that that chapter makes clear that I'm not against technology. I, 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 every teacher I know uses all, all kinds of different ways of, or tools in order to try to help achieve the end that they're trying to achieve. Um, I just, I, I think it's a risk that you tend, I think we all tend to think that the technology is much, uh, much more immediate of a replacement than it actually ends up being. Um, I, wanna, I wanna go back to what you were saying though about live performance and that, that reciprocal dynamic of feeding off the audience and the audience feeding back into 
the teacher or the person on stage. Um, I, I think this was underlined for me recently when there was a, a performance of Titus Andronicus at Shakespeare's Globe a few years ago, which I didn't get to see, but you might have heard reports that when that horrible scene happens, when Lavinia comes on stage after she's been violated and her hands have been cut off and her tongue has been cut out, people passed out in the in the audience. And that that's not something you would do in a movie theater. Um, you're, you're, you're inured to that in a way, even though you know on stage that it's just a performance, um, but there's something about the immediacy of being in that space together that elicits a powerful, you know, deep, deeply rooted uh, social, biological, whatever you want to call it, response of, of humans interacting together. I, for me, it, it just feels like it underlines that there are certain things that are really hard to replace. So, uh, Scott, at the risk of sounding hopelessly naive, um, I have to say that one of my initial reactions to your book was terror. <laughs> <laughs> because um, it's, it's, it, it, it presents uh, the reader with many, many, a myriad of windows into, into great thinkers and ideas and thoughts. And so many of them uh, were new to me. And as someone who's, you know, in my closer to 50 than to 45 anymore, I'm acutely aware that the hours of contemplation I have remaining to me are finite indeed. And so just looking at your bibliographical index, for example, is, is truly a terrifying thing. <laughs> Well, that's not I, 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 that's not my intent. That's certainly not what I was intending. I, I, uh, I mean, you're right that it, it is. I acknowledge right away on the first pages that it's really overstuffed with a barrage of quotations from a wide range of thinkers. I I wanted to do that in part for for a number of reasons. One is I, I just love sharing stuff that I love, and in some ways the book is a kind of harvest of a lot of writers and thinkers that I admire and I revere. And it's also a harvest of my teaching over the years and things that have been helpful for me in sharing in the classroom. It's also, it's partly inspired by some of the Renaissance, some of the 16th century practices of how writing emerges for a certain kind of writer. Um, someone like Montaigne or Francis Bacon or other writers who would harvest quotations into a notebook or a commonplace book and then kind of patch them together into a larger quilt or fabric or whatever conceit you want to use. So, it, you know, in some ways, the genesis of the book was emulating those models, but it's also, you know, it's a kind of an archive or an arc of things that I love and things that I've found helpful in my own thinking and my own teaching and my own parenting. So it is meant to be a, a kind of gathering of, of things that I care about. That's a beautiful way of saying it. And, and I appreciate that now that I can think of the book as kind of an infinite playlist rather than just, <laughs> just a, a huge field that, that, of rabbit holes. <laughs> <laughs> but so many beautiful ideas. Oh, and I love the preface to your, to your bibliographic index too. It, it's the, as full of deep and contemplative thought as it is, it's also very playful and there are lots of fun Easter eggs and good, good. clever asides. It's, it's a delightful read. Thank you. I really, I, that means a lot to me to hear that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I really wanted it to, I, I wanted it to convey the, the joy that I have when I teach and the joy that I have when I struggle with Shakespeare. So I, I, I'm glad that, it, that that came across. 
Yeah, and to revisit that chapter on technology, one of the reading it, it seems like the, one of the ways that you set it, the chapter up so beautifully is to contrast um, the computer and digital technology, which we think of as being almost infinitely powerful, omniscient, and omnipotent, with um, writing in the sand. And it's a it's a really beautiful meditation on that that very simple act. Um, how do you find time to contemplate? Well, it's hard right now for everybody, as you know. Um, you know, one 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 thing that I like doing that I think you see that evidence of in the book is thinking my way back through kind of genealogies of of thinkers or artists or creators or people whom I admire. So that's one piece of advice I always give to my students is if, if you have a contemporary writer who you like, you know, read what she recommends and then kind of work your way back to that previous generation and read what they recommend. And you can, you can kind of create your own, your own genealogy of people leading up to you. And you can feel connected, I think, in that way. You're, you're kind of constructing your own syllabus, as it were, of the people who influence the people who influence the people who influence you. Um, and that, that's, a, I think, a really helpful way to thread your way back into the past. And I, I find that very appealing. And I think it's productive. It, it's not prescriptive. It's not saying you have to read these seven writers, but it is, it is urging you to think your way back into a longer heritage of writing leading up to the, the, the writing that you care about today. I love that. I do that with my film students. I say, Oh, is that right? Because film, you know, filmmakers are extremely derivative of each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and so I do that. Uh, I say that, um, you know, if you like Quentin Tarantino, he pulls from Akira Kurosawa. Mm -hmm. Check him out. Um, uh, so I just wanted to really quickly touch on Sonnet 73 um, uh -huh. that you mentioned. Um, and it's, uh, I believe it's in the chapter, oh wait, it's in the chapter of um, exercises. We've talked about um, equating learning to that rote repetition that athletes and or musicians and artists do. Um, but what is Sonnet, where does Sonnet 73 come in? Um, and if you wouldn't mind reading it, that would be terrific. Sure, I'd love to read it. Um, I, I stumble over it every time I read it, in part because I think it does some really wonderful things, both with meter and with some of the conceptual playfulness that it works through. So I might have to restart, but I'll, I'll give it a shot here. That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none, or few, to hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away, death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me Thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong to love that well, which thou must leave ere long. Speaking of people who are getting on in age. Yeah, no, I mean, one thing, gosh, about 10 years ago, I figured out that I was at that point about the age that Shakespeare probably was when he was 
writing this, you know, just probably around 40, maybe a little bit younger than 40, and that my students were about the age of the addressee of the young male sonnets, the first 126 sonnets. And that that had a kind of chilling, a chilling insight at that moment to realize, oh wait, I am the old guy to them as they're looking ahead to their future 20 years from now. And uh, and I'm, you know, I, I'm not quite as bald as Shakespeare, but mm -hmm. I am I am getting older. And so the the little joke in the first quatrain about the trees without leaves is something that sounds like it's also a, a quip about his own his own possible male pattern baldness. Um, but I what I guess I love this poem in so many ways. One is just that it it just gives you there, there's all kinds of ways in which it it shows thought in process. So even if you just look at the first quatrain, um, I, I find appealing that imaginative exercise of I'm looking at you and I'm imagining that what you're thinking of as you're looking at me. That's that's a pretty complex subject position to think through. That's two layers of empathy. Right, right. I'm not just thinking about what you're what you're thinking, I'm thinking about what you're thinking about what I'm thinking. <laughs> um, and it's also, you know, it's playing its way out in an intergenerational relationship uh, between this younger man and this older man. Um, it's imagine, it's asking you to imagine what it would feel like to be in my shoes and how that connects to our relationship and our bond with each other. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. This is a fascinating book and I am excited to read the rest of it and uh, I hope it does very well once it's published. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with both of you. It made me think. <laughs> good, good. And thank you all for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.